Names Not Numbers is an annual ideas festival. It's anchored in Aldborough, Suffolk in the UK. 200 hand-picked people, 100 hours of curated conversation. And in this podcast, you're going to hear highlights from this year. This includes one of the world's greatest writers, Margaret Atwood, CNN's chief anchor, Christiane Anampur, the British celebrity journalists, Paul Mason, A.A. Gill, Rachel Johnson, on subjects as diverse as capitalism, food and boyfriends. You'll also be hearing eclectic sessions ranging from a dissection of modern media to the world's first festival devoted to insects and the science of genomics with the Wellcome Trust. Finally, as if that wasn't enough, we cover the pity of war in unflinching detail and find out why rock music is the ultimate soft power weapon. So here to kick us off with this Highlights podcast, here's the comedian and mental health campaigner Ruby Wax, discussing her book about mindfulness with the film producer, editor and activist Jemima Khan. I've read this book and it's incredibly hopeful because what it's basically saying is everyone can change and find the calm and sanity that we all look for in life. Are there any exceptions to that rule? <laughs> well, if you don't want to do that, then, then don't buy the book. <laughs> I mean, you have the choice. And also, I'm, not, I, I'm being a little flippant by saying this is the manual. It's just that I, I came out before and said, why isn't there a manual? Yes. In, you know, for how to, because everybody seems as if they know how to deal with everything. And then when you really break them down at two in the morning, they go, I don't know, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. So I was curious, and I had, well, you want to ask me questions, or I don't want to take up Just your time. Just take it away. <laughs> uh, well, why don't you talk about your own mental health issues? Let's just... I think let's yours, just talk about your lowest I think point your, first. I think yours I think it helps everyone. <laughs> I think we'd all we like to know about long. Jemima's mental health issues. <laughs> <laughs> you talk in your book about nearly half of all people on incapacity benefits in the UK. That accounts, that's accountable to mental illness. So... Can you talk about your own... Well, yeah. yeah. But the, the point is, the reason I wrote this book is because I did a show uh, that I toured around for the last five years, and then there would be discussions just like there would be in the mental institute, which were the most wonderful questions. Like, how do you get a poltergeist out of a radiator? You can't talk that. <laughs> so, but then anyway, there was with normal yeah. people, there would be question and answer, and everybody, wherever I went around the world, would ask similar questions, that they felt crazier than crazy people, and that their minds were in this kind of frenzy. Friends, even people who weren't busy, felt busy. And it was such a common theme that I thought, oh, well, okay, I'm going to research this and come up with the man, you know, for everybody, not just the people with dandruff, that it would be, and so I'd call it, say, New World, and so I went and studied um, what exactly, where are we as far as our brain, because I don't like fluffy stuff. Mm. I thought, let's get right in the meat. Yeah, because mindfulness sounds like a spiritual practice, but you're not religious, right? You're not. Uh, well, I didn't go for the mindfulness. I went because I was studying to be, you know, women, when they're about to have menopause, decide to go to study therapy, <laughs> because, you know, they know men aren't going to hit them on them again, so they think, well, let's give back. <laughs> That's their moment. It must be so weird as somebody having you as their therapist walking in. Well, and, I mean, I didn't, I didn't become a therapist. With that? I, for, I you just, did. I thought you trained for, as a psychologist. I did. No, as a psychotherapist. psychotherapist. But every week you got a smorgasbord of who the great shrinks were. And I, lo you know, I adored the stories. Especially Winnicott, who said that it was enough to be a good enough mother, which made me feel better, you know, when I used to feed my kids out of bowls of milk. <laughs> you know, it's such a relief to know it's 
you know, we have imperfections. And then they said, well, you have to now be a therapist. And that came as a total shock. So I did 200 hours. Uh, I worked at the Women's Trust, by the way, who, and these women came from climes where they never heard of me. And I thought, I have the nerve to sit here. That's a problem. Um, and so I thought, I, I'm not an angel. I can't do this. So then I thought, well, I'm really interested in the brain mm. because times have moved on. They can look in and see a live brain. When I went to Berkeley, it was a corpse. Mm. So, it was, so now they can look in. I thought, I've got to find out what's going on. And it's only been 10 years since you could actually get in it in a thinking brain. So that's when I got obsessed. I don't know, I got obsessed with seeing how we think. And I don't know why everybody else isn't too, you know. Mm. All those conversations you had when you were 18, who am I? Carve a brain open, that's the mm. answer. Does when that mean, now I want to know really how sorted you are now? I mean, in terms, because I asked you the other day about how, whether you're, I asked Ruby the other day about whether she is happier on balance now after doing this whole kind of journey of learning about neuroscience and self-discovery, and you said that you're very suspicious of the word happy. Yeah, people Explain. do say about happy, and I said, well, in certain countries, it means having a pair of shoes. <laughs> so, you know, ask everybody in this room. It would really, really be a waste of oxygen. So that's semantics. I mean, do you prefer what you prefer, the word contented or I calm? I don't want any or word, what, what, you know. Or, well, better then. Well, a word... Because otherwise, we're not going to You've got to sell your book. <laughs> But I, the, book isn't called, the book isn't called How to Find Happiness. Okay, so okay, there is, How there, to Find Sanity? There is, these, are, these are just constructs, yeah. so let's let that one go. And part of the reason I Can't. think we're screwed up is people are looking for this uh, thing called happiness, and they'll pay any kind of money for it. Mm. So in my mind, well, because it's a, it's a kick, it's a high. It's like having the first puff of a cigarette. The unfortunate thing, you know this with when you get it, no, is don't. you got, you do. <laughs> you got to keep getting no. better and better men, better and better sex, better and better, you know, hits, better and better I outfit. don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. <laughs> so, so happiness is a good kick, but the problem is, is that you can't, our systems just don't stay at that level. Mm. So I, to me, the word happy is dangerous because then people say, well, I'm happy. Are you not happy? How happy are you? It's yet another thing to compare ourselves. The financial crisis has been perhaps the defining issue of our time. Of Channel 4 News, Paul Mason is one of the sharpest commentators on the subject. And in a fascinating debate on capitalism and its future, he gives his take on boom and bust culture. I think... The neoliberal era, the last 25 years, will be seen in retrospect as a false start. I mean, it's over. We have to be really clear. Even though the policy elite, the 1%, are trying to keep shoving it down our necks, it is over. You can't keep winding up a financialised system um, <clears throat> and you know, asset, fueling asset bubbles without they keep bursting. So we're just going to get another one. It'll burst. Um, <clears throat> the... The question is, what replaces it? And I think to, I, I, I welcome your thousand-year perspective. I think it's really interesting because we, if you say, we, I think we're kind of on the on the cusp of a third capitalism. We've had mercantile financial capitalism in the 17th and 18th centuries. It's replaced by industrial capital. It goes, industrial capitalism goes through the various long cycles itself. And now I think we're on the cusp of an info economy. Um, Keynes once said, you know, uh, money is like a link to the future. It, what we do with money, it reflects what we think the future is going to be. And I think that the financial crisis now, if you look at it over the long term, it was, it was a signal back from the future to us, saying um, the future is not what you think it's going to be. 
that the information age is unfolding. It is, it is disrupting everything. The information content of ordinary physical goods like aeroplanes turns out to be huge. Um, leave aside information goods themselves. Uh, we've known since about 1990 that information goods have no pricing power. So it's not just labor that has, no longer has pricing power. Goods have no pricing power. Their, their trajectory is towards zero price. The only thing that stops them having a zero price is monopolies. We thought monopolies were gone, but they're, they're endemic to the economy. So what I've come to the conclusion is that this third unfolding kind of economy we're going to have, the information-rich economy, might not be able to be a market economy. It's not a case of it needs to be a planned economy or a statized one, but that the market mechanisms that, we, that have driven industrial capitalism probably can't survive in large parts of the information economy. And we have to work out the mix between non-market, peer-produced, free stuff, and market stuff. So that, that's, that's, where I, that, that, that's, longer, that's the longest telescope I can give them on the crisis I think we're going through. More powerful than money is the power of faith and which God, if any, we believe in. Here's the journalist Yasmin Alibi-Brown on faith's complex meaning for her. I was born into a Muslim community which is um, so loathed and hated by mainstream Islam that our dead cannot be buried in their graveyards. And it's nice Englanders who've given us a plot in Surrey to, bury, to, to die and be buried in, so I'll be very English when I'm buried. Um, so it's, it's a quite a rebellious little religion. It, it's Ismaili Shiaism. Um, and it's always been very evolutionary um, and intensely personal. So your relationship is, in, is we have ritual and we have prayers twice a day, uh, before dawn, dawn and after dusk and so on. But the main thing is you are in connection or you try to be with your God. It's a very intensely intimate personal relationship. You know, I don't like being the kind of Muslim now is arguing out there. And it's become intensely personal and spiritual. And like Tim said, I talk to God at night. And I've become very uh, kind of gripped by this thing called faith. And now I think there's a big difference between faith and religion. And faith is on the inside and it's quiet and it's mine. And religion is noisy a bloody nuisance and a problem. <laughs> and I don't know how to kind of put these two things together. There are three other things that I'm very quickly going to mention why the religion does. I get periodic um, emails from Richard Dawkins uh, saying, how can an intelligent woman like you be religious and be part of this nasty, stupid religion, and I don't answer anymore. But I, I think I should, um, because I think there are three other very important reasons. It connects me to my mother and to my mother's friends, who were such a part of my life, and they're more or less all gone now. And so when I pray, I am with them, wherever they are. As an immigrant, and Julius mentioned this, the mosques, our mosque is opposite the VNA, connects me to a past that's dying. My two children are absolutely uninterested in who I am, where I came from, my religion. Actually, 
they're so British, they don't give a damn about me. Um, I'm a, a bloody immigrant to them. And <laughs> so all this is kept alive for me. And the final thing that it does give me is something that my mother always do things. She said, there were different roads to God. And if you, wa if you really have faith, you have to be modest and humble. So those are the reasons. And I think they do matter actually more and more. 2014 is the 100th anniversary of the Great War and GQ magazine, which commissioned some of the finest contemporary war reporting in the world today, assembled for us an extraordinary panel of people with first-hand experience. They document the horrors and bear witness to history. Here is Sean Langan. You live life so intensely when you're covering those stories on the front line. Uh, it's like you live uh, a thousand lives. Uh, and I always was aware that if my life ended, I used to write letters to my mum and just to let her know that it's, it's those who you leave behind who are suffering. You've, you've been having the most intense, incredible experiences in your life. And, it, and it, there's something, it's, there is in those moments, this is why I think people become adrenaline junkies, when you're witnessing such extreme life or death situations, it is like slightly you've been offered for a brief moment a glimpse into some wisdom. So, in fact, I always thought, if I died now, this is what well, I've lived. You know, one year in Afghanistan feels like a thousand years back in suburban England. I think the difference is, and Mary Colvin didn't have children, it's, as a father, I then thought, actually, now, the, if I leave behind two orphans, then that's, mm. it is selfish. <clears throat> so I think, up until you've got children, don't feel sorry or was it a waste of a life. She, she, she lived a thousand lives. More on war, this time in the context of hard power and the limits of diplomacy. Thanks to our partner CNN, we were able to draw on the experience of their highly respected chief international correspondent and anchor, Christiane Anampur. In her session, she made an impassioned plea for the West not to ignore Syria. We are actually witnessing as human beings the slow, actually quick now slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. Um, I understand the reservations. I also understand that we are now in an area, an era of retrenchment. The leader of the free world, the leader of NATO, President Obama, has decided that this is a time when we pull back from military adventures, probably burned by what happened during the Bush administration. The British Parliament voted against even punishing uh, Assad for crossing their own red line, which was chemical weapons. This was shocking to all of us because Britain is a warrior nation and Britain has stood with defending these kinds of rights and this kind of order for, anyway, certainly since I remember. Um, I think that in that case, if war-war is not an option, then jaw-jaw has to be the option. And that even that isn't going right. And if we're talking about diplomacy and its discontent, um, two things are not happening. There is no diplomacy over Syria. There is none. It's a charade. Geneva is a charade. Mostly because of... Of, uh, of Russia and Iran probably, but Iran's not at the table. Iran's on the ground, uh, Russia's at the table. Russia is doing nothing to advance any kind of transition in Syria. Add to that the deception that Russia entered into and pulled the wool over America's eyes and Britain's eyes and everybody else's with the so-called much highly vaunted, highly touted, brilliant success of the chemical weapons deal. First and foremost, the chemical weapons have not come out. Secondly, and this is according to the United States Director of National Intelligence, Assad is strengthened by that little bit of diplomacy because he believes the world now needs him. 
So in every respect, things are not going right. At Names Not Numbers, we deliberately contrast light and shade, culture and politics, humour and wrenching issues of the day with what we discuss. To art now, with the sculptor and painter Maggie Hambling, and to her famous and controversial sculpture, The Scallop. This can be found very near to the venues Names Not Numbers uses on Aldborough Beach. Here she discusses it and the inspiration behind it with Kirsty Lang, presenter of BBC Radio 4's Front Row. The sculpture is installed so that it is in communication with the sea, I mean, the sort of runnels of the, 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 the curved part of the shell kind of echo the waves. And, of course, because of the, ero <coughs> the erosion, I mean, the, the sea has come in at Thorpness and gone, and the shingle is out at Albright. The shingle's been pushed in at Thorpness and come out. So when Scollop was first unveiled, it was actually much closer to the sea than it is now, but it's still near enough to see to be in this sort of... Con it was a double thing, like the sculpture being in conversation with the sea, and uh, it, it is... I mean, I conceived of it as a place where someone could sort of sit and contemplate the horizon. And, I mean, a lot of people talk to the sea, you know. I mean, it's a sort of natural thing to do. And it's a bit like an, an ear in some ways, isn't it? The scallop or the sort of shape. Could it be an ear to the sea? Well, if you see it that way, Kirsty. But I mean, <laughs> part of the uh, part of the um, inspiration. I mean, it came from the very simple thing, the thing of using the shell, from the simple thing of when you're a child and you put a shell to your ear and it makes the sound of the sea. I mean, that sort of was this very simple sort of beginning of it, and then the scallop shell being the symbol of the sea and of pilgrimage and of love, it had got a lot going for it. To media matters, Michael Wolfe is possibly the most candid and provocative of commentators. He's also had unparalleled access to the world's most famous mogul, Rupert Murdoch. Here he is in conversation with CNN's Peter Bale. The reason I wrote a book about him is that he's just a great character. Um, um, you know, and whether he's right or wrong, whether the world is benefits or not from Rupert Murdoch was not my concern. My concern was, um, was to tell this, this incredible story. Um, nobody in our time has held power as long and as successfully as Rupert Murdoch. I mean, that's a big thing. And, and I think you now think he might come out on top in all this, right? That he's separated the companies and that he will actually emerge not only unscathed, but stronger. Well, you know, I mean, I always think that Rupert is going down. Um, and then, um, then miraculously, he, he does not. And I think that he's actually in, at the age of 83, he's, he now has assembled the largest print company in um, in, in the world, the most well-resourced print company in, in the world. And if he makes the bet, which I think he's going to make, um, that, um, that, that print everywhere is the ultimate distressed asset, um, that it's ready to be bought up for, for, um, uh, for pennies on the dollar, um, and that it's worth significantly more than that, then, then he makes an incredible... So he'll have the last run. laugh. 
in this in this tremendous turmoil that's going on in the business, he'll I, have. You his... know, I, I tend to believe that that at some point I will have the last laugh over Rupert, but um, you never know. So I believe you saw Rupert the other day in circumstances that are weirdly similar to the to the to the meeting you had recently, or bump uh, or. Eye contact you had with Rebecca Brooks at the at the Old Bailey. There's something as uh, I am. Read, read, pick up this month's GQ for the for the um, for the Old Bailey connection. But tell us a little bit about this thing with Rupert last week. So I haven't seen Rupert since um, uh, since since my book come, came out. Um, since he sort of cut me and um, um, and there was a period in which in which I appeared in the in the New York Post on a um, on a on a on a daily basis, um, in um, problematic terms, let's let's just uh, put it that way. Um, and after that, I kind of vowed, okay, you know, he wants to play that way, fine. I will dedicate myself to going after Rupert in every venue that I have. Um, um, and since I am the only person outside his family and his closest executives who actually has a, a relationship with, with, with Rupert, who really knows, um, um, can make some claim on what he thinks, that's given me a, um, some quite a privileged position to really, really, really get under his skin. Um, <laughs> but I haven't seen him um, since then, so that's, um, so, but I was in, um, 1211 6th Avenue, which is, which is the News Corp headquarters um, on 47th and 6th. Um, um, and um, I was in the building seeing someone else, not, not, not related to, to, to Murdoch business. And I came down on the, on the elevator, um, and I was the only one on the elevator. I'm standing very near the, the, the edge, waiting to get out. The doors open. And you know, literally, not six, maybe nine inches away, uh, there's someone who I, seems very familiar to me. Um, um, I, matter of fact, and then the first thing I think, I thought, oh, who is that? It looks great. And then I thought, shit. <laughs> and at that moment, I could see it in his eyes. He thought, shit. <laughs> And there was no way you could kind of avoid this and that. I mean, we were there, so we're, we're just literally locked. Um, and it's like, what, 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 what to do? I had no idea. And so I, I just, so I, I, I said sheepishly, a little flirtatiously, but she, sheepishly, I said, hello, Rupert. <laughs> And instinctively, my hand went out. And my, as my hand got near him, he threw up his arms um, in, in complete revulsion, um, recoiled, in, um, um, and, then, and then started to do the, the, the Murdoch mumble, which and he hunched down. And then he swept past me in, in, into the elevator, really knocking my shoulder. I'm thinking, this guy is in great shape. He's going to be around forever. Um, <laughs> Um, and that was it. He went in, the doors closed, and I went out, and I thought, oh, God, that was kind of scary. We had plenty of wise grey hairs speaking their voice of experience, but the fresh voice of youth blew through Names Not Numbers like a fresh sea breeze. Take Rachel Campbell Bamping, the 20-something who says that cheerleading should be regarded as a sport feminists can be proud of. 
I am here today to tell you about why cheerleading matters, about why it's important for all of you to leave here with new knowledge, replacing the Hollywood media-generated gross misrepresentation of a sport that is both inspiring and inclusive, that a sport that completely breaks down gender barriers, and above all, a sport that teaches teamwork and discipline and self-respect. A typical cheer routine will contain jumps, tumbles, stunts, throws and dance. There is no supporting the boys' team on the pitch. Squads train for months to put together a routine for competition, a routine that is then judged against other squads on technique, difficulty, and execution. My squad is my family. You cannot put your well-being into the hands of other people on a daily basis and not form bonds of incredible strength. That, and you learn lessons you couldn't elsewhere. If we miss a catch, there is a chance our flyer will not walk away. She lets us put her in the air with that fact firmly in mind, and she lets us throw her anyway. That is what cheerleading is. It is trust and bravery. It is strength in mind as well as body, and it is teamwork beyond compare. In conversation with journalist and filmmaker Jonathan Meads, writer and critic A.A. Gill discusses the globalisation of food. Do you think globalising, the globalisation of food is a bad thing in general? Do you, do you think the fact that pizza is the international dish of everybody that under the age of 30 is a bad thing? Well, and people way over 30, like myself. Um, the, the, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think my, there's, no, you, there's no going back. We, we, and it rather depends on how good the pizza is. The pizza in Marseille, where I live, is very different from the pizza in Naples, mm. and I'd say it's much better because it's a tart fiend. And the French do this thing, if they take something, they do this with people too, of course, they take something from, which comes from Mali or from Algeria, or in this case from Naples, and they attempt to make it better. This happens to work with pizza, it doesn't necessarily work with people. But do you think that where food comes from, that there is an authenticity in, in, in food eaten in the place that it originally came from that gives it something special? No. Right, should we have any questions then? <laughs> no, it, do, it, it doesn't, because the globalisation of, of food has me meant that the local has become global and you're as likely to get a good pot au feu in Dubai as you are in um, Soissons. Yes, I, mean, I, this is, I think this is, this is rather my point, and, and that, that that is a good thing. And what I, what I dislike about food is the jingoism of food, is the, 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 the words that we have, the names that we call each other that are the, the, the throwaway derogatory lines of other countries, the, the krauts, the frogs, the roast beef, are all are all names of things that you assume the others eat and that other people's food is dirty, that other people's food makes them less. I don't think it assumes that it's dirty. I think it's almost kind of um, a, a, a transparent... It's a, a, a description which is appropriate because <laughs> when you go to Germany, people do eat sauerkraut and the French do eat frogs and the English do eat roast beef, but probably not as much as the French. But that is, that's principally what, what I don't like about, about the, 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 the regionalisation or the, or the adoption 
the political adoption of food is that it becomes, this is what we eat, and to be like us, you have to eat like us. Whereas one of the great things about doing the job that we do is that you actually eat everywhere, and you, you understand that the things that are really important about food are not big, grand, national things. They're not, they're not where your black pudding comes from. It's who you share your black pudding with. What's really good about food is the table and the people who are sitting around it with you. Diplomacy and its discontents and geopolitics generally loomed large this year at Names Not Numbers. Discussing whether soft power can open up more channels of communication between countries than conventional diplomacy, global arts promoter Harvey Goldsmith gives his view. Music is the international ambassador, even more than sport. Uh, music crosses all boundaries and crosses all creeds, all religions, all problems, all over the world. And we are, uh, and in music generally, uh, we've probably done and created more in the terms of, as you call it, soft power in relationships with other countries than I think than anything else, uh, be it armaments or diplomacy or hard diplomacy. Furthermore, the music business is self-contained, so it doesn't take a penny from government unless government wants to meddle in it, which it does occasionally by superficially organising kind of cultural trips um, for orchestras and whatever. But in the main, um, music is an amazing ambassador, and um, I've been lucky enough to go to and pioneered many countries and taken music over there and brought music back from those countries. For example, um, China. Um, one automatically assumed that as soon as the barriers started to open up in China that every rock band from the Rolling Stones to the Poods or whatever uh, would go to China be hugely successful. And the answer is uh, they were all failures. Uh, the reason being is because China's, the average Chinese person's ears are tuned to a different style of sound. And therefore, in China particularly, what worked there was classical music. In Japan, what worked in Japan and started to break the barriers down was actually jazz. And now they take... And, and parts of, of rock music and some pop music which are indefinable. And equally with China, as the young generation are coming through, um, one would assume that they would deal with the heritage. I, I first... I took the first Western pop band to China in 1984, 85, I beg pardon, uh, with George Michael and Wham. And um, it was a quite strange experience. Um, <laughs> I was there. Which, <laughs> yes, which um, ended up with, I think, the premiere turning up and there was panic stations at the end. And when we first arrived in China, and got to the border, they didn't know, because we played in two concerts in Hong Kong beforehand, they didn't know who we were, what we were, <laughs> why we were there, and why there were so many of us, until I started dishing out um, cassettes and T-shirts, and then they thought this was wonderful, and of course, they let us in. Of all the subjects that interest our guests, almost nothing makes them crane forward in their seats as much as science. This year's session, curated with the Wellcome Trust, centred on genomics. 
Here's Professor Sir Mike Stratton, Director of the Wellcome Sanger Institute, talking about the march of scientific progress in this most compelling field. We're trying to put a structure and rules around a train that has already left the station. You know, there are people who are having their genome sequenced. Having that sort of test was the domain of a doctor in the past in response to a medical need. That's no longer the case. There are thousands, tens of thousands of people that have had their bits of, bits of their genome sequenced to 23andMe and these other companies. There are more and more individuals who are having their whole genome sequenced, and they're doing it for a variety of different reasons. Anything because they are interested somehow in looking through a set of tarot cards that they see their genome to be to predict their destiny, they're looking in the wrong place if they think that's what they're going to get, to looking for genealogy, to looking for some hidden ethnic origin in the past, and others are doing it for, you know, more speculative or apocryphal reasons like dating. I mean, so this is becoming part of our culture, the generation and engagement with genomes beyond the confines of the doctor's surgery. One of the most unusual speakers at this year's Names Not Numbers was Bridget Nichols, founder of Pestival, the world's largest and only insect festival. So what matters to her? No prizes for guessing. Insects are an important, imperative thing to bioscience and saving and prolonging human lives. Who knew that the common fruit fly with bulging red eyes and a leg coming out of its head would reveal the fundamental principles of the human genome and genetics. From the embryo to the nervous system to diabetes, cancer, autism, the fruit fly is so important, it's it's the mainstay of thousands of biomedical research labs all around the world. And as everyone knows, the bees have been suffering our Workhorse food pollinators aren't doing very well, and that's probably due to monoculture over-farming, lowering their immune system, and pesticides. What you may not know is that bees are now being trained as sniffer bees to sniff out explosives and bombs at airports. With this in mind, Pestival, with the designer Susanna Suarez, created this glass chamber medical tool and we trained the bees to smell on the breath and detect human breath, uh, cancer and diabetes, and also to detect pregnancy. And can I just say no beans were harmed in this? We trained them in rotation, they rested and had a fallow day and then started again. So we've also talked earlier this week about cities and the future of cities and societies, of course. Social insects, or superorganisms, have been doing the sustainable cooperation thing for hundreds of millions of years and perfecting it. And the termite mound is a city within a skyscraper. It's like a breathable structure that self-regulates and ventilates and produces its own air conditioning with an air entering via the chimney of the mound and it's acting like living lungs pushing the air out. To celebrate the amazing ingenuity of termites, Pestival, with software architects and a crack team of engineers, created the Termite Pavilion here on the South Bank. To create the idea of this breathable structure, David Attenborough's acclaimed sound recordist, Chris Watson, created a surround sound installation. 
he dropped a contact mic down the chimney of a termite mound in Namibia, and this is what he heard. It's lots of termites shivering to keep the temperature consistent, and you can hear the air circulating round through the chimney. To have the writer Margaret Atwood speak at any festival is a highlight, and to have her at Names Not Numbers felt extraordinary. Here she is in conversation with Baroness Helena Kennedy QC on the issues that prey on her mind. You actually were writing about feminist issues before the women's movement. Yeah, we don't even need to call them feminist issues. Let's call them power structures in society. Yeah. Uh, because feminist, you know, that puts it in a little... In a little box, yeah. playground all of its own just for girls. Mm. Uh, whereas you cannot change the position of women in society without also changing the position of men. Sure. It is a joined at the hip thing, and it is like one of those old uh, barometers in which um, there were two little figures. I'm sorry to say that fair weather was women and uh, storms were men. <laughs> but, but, but you came at this really from concept of justice. I mean, it was about, you saw this and, and you wrote about the position of women, really partly because you were talking about a society that was, that was where injustice was somehow uh, inbuilt. Think, things were unequally distributed, mm -hmm. but they're unequally distributed now. Mm -hmm. And we're not just talking about gender. Yeah. We're talking about who gets what, uh, who rearranges the rules to make sure they get more. Uh, that would be crony capitalism. Yeah. Uh, and how that affects really everybody who is a part of society. And we are getting now quite dangerously close to the pre-French revolution in which too few people have got too much and too many people have got too little. And that's, that's a very unbalanced situation. And by the laws of, of physics and chemistry, there's going to be an equalizing yes. event. There's going to be a peasant revolt. <laughs> well, maybe not quite exactly that, but it can't go on accumulating at the top that way without something falling over. Mm -hmm. You know, it really just, it can't. Uh, something's, going to, something's going to break, and as William Gibson, the SF writer, author of Neuromancer, has said, the future is already here, but it's unevenly distributed. I love that quote. And that it's is, so in wonderful. fact, and true. Yeah. Uh, so there are parts of the world where you're already seeing a big breakdown of previously viable infrastructures in the society because it's just not working. Discussion at Names Not Numbers is not confined to daylight hours. Salonnière Damien Barr's nighttime session on the 1980s included a dazzling youthful secret from Rachel Johnson, the journalist and member of the infamous Johnson family dynasty. At the Lyceum, I picked up my first ever boyfriend, who was a Mohican from Billericay. <laughs> and after the gig, uh, I somehow or other we managed, despite not being on Twitter or Instagram or having mobile phones, we managed to find each other the following week. And things moved on fairly, at a fair lick after that. And my father was a Euro MP, and he had made the mistake of giving me his keys to his bachelor flat in Maida Vale. So I took the opportunity, while he was in Strasbourg, to take Aldo, 
back to the flat, because I thought my father was, the parliament was in session. Unfortunately, <laughs> as things were progressing oh. in the flat, my father came in <gasps> and had the presence of mind. Remember that Aldo was a Mohican, okay? So we heard the key in the lock. Aldo was six foot seven or something, terribly good looking, made music videos and became very well known for it, Aldo, Aldo Sodani. And then I Googled him, and I found out he died, because I kept on finding these, these are songs for Aldo. Anyway, so my father walked in, found his daughter in Medias Reyes, and just looked at Aldo, who managed to stand up to greet my father standing, and my father just went, how? <laughs> <laughs> hope you've enjoyed this snapshot of the highlights of Names Not Numbers. All the unedited podcasts from every session are available on namesnotnumbers.com. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made Names Not Numbers possible. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. Thank you for listening. <laughs>